Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage Podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director at Mitchell Institute. We'll be filling in as host this week for Slick, who's on travel. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. And please give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Now this week, it's time for the Rendezvous, or monthly installment, where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we have General Deptula. Hey, Doug. Great to be here. We've also got Anthony Laser Lazarski. Thanks for the invite. Next up, we've got Todd Sledgeharmer. Great to be here, Doug. As you all know, Laser and Sledge are Washington legislative experts who we have on as part of the Rendezvous crew. So, okay, last week, all of us participated as part of the Air Force Association's Airspace and Cyberspace Conference. And it's literally a gathering of the entire Air Force and Space Force leadership, top industry executives, members of Congress, international air chiefs, attaches, a broad range of folks involved in various facets of the defense community. And the event receives huge international coverage, and it's really a center of gravity for all things air and space from a national security vantage. And it's where top leaders help explain their vectors and where folks come to exchange ideas. This year, I think the estimates are well over 10,000 people attended, and it was really the biggest ever. I think if we look at the national security scene and, and what's up right now, it's no question that people have a lot of interest in what's going on. So I want to pitch this to all of you as a question. What were some of your top takeaways from a leadership perspective when it came to the Secretary, Chief Staff of the Air Force, and Chief of Space Operations? And General Deptula, let's start with you, and then we'll go to Laser and Sledge. Okay, well, uh, thanks, Doug. I think all would agree that this year's Air Force Association Airspace and Cyber Conference was the best one in recent years. It certainly was the largest in a long time. Now, from the secretary and the chief's remarks to those of the rest of the panel presentations, it was really rich in content, and it gave all, at least all who were paying attention, insights into the significant challenges that our Air Force and our Space Force are facing today and will face tomorrow. And while there was something covering each of the mission areas, in the Department of the Air Force Enterprise, I think that from a macro level perspective, the key takeaway was that the Department of the Air Force faces serious challenges now and in the future in meeting the expectations of our nation's combatant commanders. And that's due, quite frankly, to the increased demand for aerospace forces in order to meet all of our security challenges. Now, the conference marked the 75th anniversary of our Air Force. And accordingly, the theme of the conference was 75 years in the defense of our nation. And while all airmen and guardians are justifiably proud of our heritage and the great deeds of the men and women who got us to be the most respected air and space forces in the world, it's important to acknowledge that the Air Force today is the oldest, smallest, and least ready in the history of those 75 years. Perhaps more importantly, with the path that it's on for the future year's defense plan, it's headed to becoming even older and smaller than it is today. So to reverse this ominous trend, redistributing resources among the armed services, while painful, will be required. 
Now, this is not a new practice. For the 20 years after 9-11, the Army received $1.3 trillion more than the Air Force. That's an average of over $66 billion a year annually more than the Air Force. That was done to compensate for the increased demand for land forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. But guess what? We're no longer in Iraq and Afghanistan so it's now time to apply that same logic to ensure the Air Force has the capabilities and capacity that it requires, that the Joint Force requires of it to meet the demands placed on it to deter and, if necessary, win in a pure fight against a big adversary. That message, while not explicitly made by either the Secretary or the Chief, was certainly made clear in the presentation by General Kelly the commander of Air Combat Command, in his presentation that vividly showed the decline in the deterrent and warfighting capacity of the Air Force over the past 30 years. The point was also made as well by members of Congress from both sides of the aisle in another presentation on the topic. So overall, it was a great conference that highlighted the consequential challenges that the Department of the Air Force faces today, as well as in the future. Chief of Staff C.Q. Brown brought the past and the future together in highlighting for the audience that with the indefatigable spirit of the men and women in the Air Force, we've been here before and we'll get through it again. I'll just wrap this segment up by suggesting that I, I wholeheartedly agree, but not without explaining to the American public, the Congress, and the decision makers in OMB and the Department of Defense, the dire straits that the Air Force finds itself after having been funded less than the Army and the Navy for 30 years in a row now. The Air Force needs more capacity as well as new capabilities as it must increase its lethality in order to deter China. And this is simply going to require more resources. Yeah, I agree with everything with General Deptula said. I have to say, what I again, I saw the numbers over 16,000. I don't know what the actual numbers were, and haven't been going to the AFA for now 17 years since I've been here in D.C. I would say that since sequestration, it was definitely the best AFA I've seen. What I love most about this one is I saw, I would say, more honesty on where we're at, and it goes right in what General Deptula said. From General Brown on down to all the commanders, everyone has been honest about what the threat is, China, Russia what our capabilities are, what our capabilities need to be. And I thought from a space force, it was wonderful to hear them also talk about the space threat and what they're dealing with every day. And then again, getting into what we are doing as an Air Force. So again, I thought the panels were great from Congress, the congressional panels through each of the commands. Yeah, I, I would agree with what's been previously said, but just in general themes, I, I would say there was certainly a sense of urgency, if not a sense of panic on the part of the Air Force, uh, very honest assessment of where we are, what the threat is. I thought the secretary did a nice job laying out his imperatives as imperatives, not things that we would like to do. But I was really struck by the, uh, the amount of time that he spent on 
talking airmen and guardians and the issues confronting them. And I thought that was completely appropriate. Switching over to General Brown, I think I got a sense having heard him last year that this year it's the fact that the theory of accelerate change or lose has met the enemy, and that is the bureaucracy, the frozen middle. And I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge as we try to uh, modernize and improve readiness in the Air Force. But I, I was really struck with this comment that he made about decision making, that once a decision is made, the debate is over. It's time to move out and make things happen. And I thought that was appropriate. And then finally, with General Raymond, I saw that as a bit of a, a farewell address. And I would say maybe a challenge to General Saltzman, if he is confirmed to replace him, that the honeymoon with Congress for the Space Force is over. Now you guys have to live up to the promise that you have. And I, I think they will do that. Salty's the right guy to move us forward. No, those are great points, guys. I appreciate it. I just want to dig in one thing that General Deptula is referring to, and that's General Mark Kelly, Head Air Combat Command. I mean, he made some really clear-cut points. So Sledge Laser, could you walk us through a little bit more what's on his mind? Because this is going to go down as a consequential speech. Yeah, Doug, I'll jump into that one first. And I think this is really that classic debate between capacity and capability. And, you know, we are very, very capable Air and Space Force, but we just do not have the capacity whether you go back to the 386 Squadron Air Force, to what you need for multi-role fighters to do the job. And I'll say this, this is not just a problem for General Kelly either. I mean, General Manahan sees it at AMC, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But it's also, it's an issue for the uh, for the Space Force. When you're talking about overhead a missile warning, are you going to go with the high, exquisite geo-satellites? Or as Dr. Tournier is suggested maybe they're going to go to a constellation in low Earth orbit. So again, it's that capacity versus capability argument. And I would say specific to ACC, though, and, and the problem that, that General Kelly faces, for too long, TAC Air has been the bill payer for the rest of the Air Force. And when you put that in the resource-constrained environment that General Deptula mentioned earlier, it's, it's a major problem. The bill has finally come due. It's going to be time to allocate the resources and show commitment to rebuild the Air Force. I thought he had some great quotes out there. Again, I and going back to what I said earlier, identifying the threat, you know, fighting over in Indo-PACOM and looking at the realities of that new threat environment. And again, some of us have been through the Cold War. We saw that integrated air defense the Soviet Union has, but now as we got to go fight at a distance, 7,000 miles trying to get the force out there. And he started talking about, you know, rebalancing the fighter portfolio, but he talked about having the right size fleet to keep it viable. And that's great. Critical. And, and again, if we continue to retire aircraft, we're not going to have the fleet. And he went into, we don't have the assets in Indopaycom or Europe to go ahead and do what we need to do, which is just emphasize a little more what General Deptula said. But when you start shrinking a 40-year-old fleet from 4,000 to 2,000, the risk increases and you're not going to be able to execute combat capabilities. And the one thing, even during the Cold War, we were going to, we planned on a tritting aircraft. We don't have the aircraft to a trit. John Deptula, thoughts on it? Yeah, great points, Laser and the Sledge. As, as I mentioned earlier, I thought that General Kelly's presentation was, quite frankly, the most attention-getting of the entire conference. It was extraordinarily delivered, and, and he made it very clear that the Air Force writ large, and the fighter force in particular, have been levied more mission on them than it has force structure to accomplish. That's the bottom line up front. He made the point that the Air Force 2018 assessment regarding the Air Force we need is still relevant today. That bottom line being that the Air Force has about 25% fewer forces today than are required to execute the national defense strategy. Now, 
Some have questioned the affordability of that goal, which is exactly why Congress called for the study to determine what the national defense strategy requirements actually are, not what they cost. While a consistent theme over the past decade by the Department of Defense has been on affordability, Kelly put that in perspective by closing with a line that some of us have been using for over a decade. The only thing more expensive than a first-rate Air Force is a second-rate Air Force. In other words, not having the sufficient capacity to deter war such that an adversary is lured into the mistaken belief or perhaps the actual belief that they can actually fight and win against the United States would take us into a conflict that would be enormously more expensive than the cost of building, sustaining, and being ready to effectively use those forces if necessary. That's the essence of deterrence, causing an adversary not to elect to confront us if in conflict, because they know that if they do, they'll face certain defeat. So I really believe General Kelly's to be commended for his remarks and speaking on a topic that some would rather ignore than face head on. Because if we don't, the Air Force will continue to get older, smaller, and less ready than it already is. I just I want to jump on the studies. I mean, we've done so many studies out of our time that we've been up here together. And when you do get those studies back, they will give you a range of how many assets. And the problem is, is they're going to give you from high risk to low risk. And then what has happened, what I've seen over time, is we've accepted more and more and more risk. And that's what's putting us at this right now. And, and one of the quotes that I thought you were going to bring up, he said at the end, he says when he, and he's referring to General Brown, says accelerate, change or lose, we say we win or die. And I thought that was outstanding. Yeah, that's huge. Now, John Leptula, you moderated a panel with th similar themes with Mark Gunzinger of our team and, and Congressman Fluger of Texas and Congressman Kahele of Hawaii. Can you talk about how these two panels reinforced one another? Uh, yeah, sure, Doug. I, I, I'm not too biased on this one since I moderated it. I thought it was an excellent panel, but it, it really was if you look at it objectively. Mark Gunzinger gave an overview of the paper that we just released that I'd encourage all to read. Anyone who's interested in a strong national defense, it's an imperative. And it was used to make the point that the Air Force requires, first, honest reporting by the Department of Defense on what actually goes into its accounts without the $40 billion of pass-through funding that goes to other Department of Defense agencies. And second, additional share of the DOD budget to correct 30 years of underfunding. That's the cause of the Air Force's decline in force structure. So both Congressman Kahele, a Democrat, and Pfluger, a Republican, are very supportive of both, and they made the case for both quite eloquently. But even if the pass-through funding deception was changed, and it was put where it actually resides, in defense-wide spending, there would still be the problem that almost annually now, Congress fails to pass a budget by the start of the fiscal year, and instead, they rely on continuing resolutions, or CRs, that keep the government open but funded at the previous year's level. Air Force leaders, as we all know, have frequently 
decried continuing resolutions as they prevent the service from starting new programs or issuing contracts in a predictable manner. Now, the congressmen pledged that they're committed to making sure that we can, they can avoid those CRs in order to allow policymakers inside DOD and the Air Force to do what's needed to deter. However, I'd suggest that Congress appears all but certain to need a continuing resolution to start fiscal year 2023 on October 1st. And the congressman warned that a full budget in the annual National Defense Authorization Act, which sets policy for the Pentagon, realistically may not pass until December after the midterm elections in November. Sledge, thoughts on this? No, I was able to attend the panel, and I would echo what General Deptula said. I, and I thought Gonzo did a fantastic job in the panel. I think the key takeaways, and I got to spend a little bit of time with both of the members of Congress after the event and chat with them, but a couple of big takeaways for me is, first of all, national security or defense is, is truly a bipartisan issue. There's support on both sides of the aisle. But I would say, you know, and, and, and we do our share here of critiquing our service, and, and I, I think Congress does their fair share of critiquing our service as well. But the budget request that goes over to Capitol Hill every year is a request. It's a starting point. And I think before the panelists point their finger at the Air Force too much, they ought to look at themselves and say, if, if we understand national security, then we need to be able to show the commitment and allocate the resources to the Department of Defense and more importantly, to the Department of the Air Force to achieve the national security objectives that we've set out for them. That's really good. Yeah, I talked to you guys earlier about this, but one of my favorite quotes, 1983, President Reagan made the following statement on how we should budget for national security. And he states, we start by considering what must be done to maintain peace and review all the possible threats against our security. Then a strategy for strengthening peace and defending against those threats must be agreed upon. And finally, our defense establishment must be evaluated to see what is necessary to protect against any or all of the potential threats. The cost of achieving these ends is totaled up, and the result is a budget for national defense. Frame that one up and put it on the wall. That is accurate today in spades. Now, I also understand that General Minahan, who's commander of Air Mobility Command, hit a far more assertive tone than we've heard from mobility community as of late. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I've got some thoughts on that one. General Minahan took the stage and he fired up the audience about the existential threat China poses to the American way of life and the urgent work needed to defeat it. His was one of the standout presentations, and like General Kelly, he too should be commended for speaking candidly about the challenges the Air Force is facing. Minahan laid out that the U.S. military is currently not ready to fight and win inside the first island chain in the Pacific in a potential conflict. This is a problem because, as he said, if it isn't fixed, your kids are going to grow up subservient to a rules-based order that benefits only one country if we lose. So that, that was pretty spot on. I mean, Minahan's passionate tone and his, his one-liners stood out amid the scripted deliveries of most of the other keynote speeches. He candidly stated that lethality matters most and, and said that when you can kill your enemy, every part of your life is better. And then he questions the kind of rhetorical question, but why is the mobility guy talking about lethality? 
It's what Minivan asked in this what was called a mobility manifesto. And in answer, he reminded the audience that the Air Force has a kill count which can't be matched. The pile of our nation's enemy dead, the pile that's the biggest, is in front of the United States Air Force, uh, he went on to say. And, and that's why we mutinied and started our own service in 1947. He then went on to talk about four gaps in Mobility Command's capabilities that he's concerned about. Command and control, navigation, maneuvering under fire, and tempo. And then to bridge those gaps, he urged his troops to get creative, and he gave an example. He said that his troops could fly a KC-46 tanker with just one pilot so that other pilots can fly other jets. And he went on to say that he didn't think fighter pilots are the only ones who have the birthright to fly an airplane solo. So he's thinking out in front, he's generating new ideas, and he's thinking about how to generate the tempo required to win. And he's to be commended for that. It was awesome. I thought his was one of the most motivational speeches I've heard. I don't want to even call it a speech because it was a talk. And he laid it out. And again, he laid out the threat. I thought the one quote was, China is making an Air Force tailored to kill you, not hypothetically look in the mirror you. And, and, and he, set the, he set the stage. He also talked about the importance of mobility, which was critical, and talks about, you know, without Air Mobility Command, you can't get troops, ammunition, equipment into the fight, and then the, you know, the distance that we have. He talked about, like you said, sir, lethality matters most, and he doesn't apologize for being lethal because that's what we do. I just really thought it was an outstanding talk. General uh, Van Ovost, I mean, when you, when you look at, and I pulled this out back in this came in 2019 when we start, we were looking at canceling C-17 production. And even back then, when they said the Congressional Research Service indicated the C-17 was designed to, to do 1,000 hours a year for 30 years, and the first year we had had 2,400 hours on it. So now you're wondering why we're having problems with the C-17, and then we don't have anything out there. You're going to have to bring it out sooner or later. Sledge and I were talking the same things happening with the fighter force. No, and to see that one-two punch on that issue between General Minahan and then General Van Ovest, head of transcom, I think is excellent. And frankly, we've been trying to drag that C-17 point out of the mobility community for a couple of years now. We never should have stopped building those things. We have been you know, just pulverizing them for 30 years straight. And the fact that we don't have another option in the works right now is, is really, really dangerous. I mean, back to the ability to fill attrition and loss. I mean, come on. Sledge, thoughts? No, I didn't get to see this talk in real time, but I, d I did read it. I saw the, the social media posts, and I was pretty fired up. I went down in the basement, dug out my flight suit. I was ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> did it fit? It did, actually, yeah. yeah. And by, by the way, and I incorrectly attributed the, the one quote to General Kelly, but it was actually General Minahan that talked about, you know, if you can't accelerate change, uh, you, it's either win or die. Well, I'm excited to hear what else he has to add to the conversation. You know, what other panels left an impression with you guys? Laser, let's start with you. You know, again, I've, I've, I got excited about, uh, and again, I, they keep changing the name, but our unmanned, uh, we call them loyal wingmen, or you can call it uh, CCA combat Collaborative, Collaborative combat, aircraft. combat aircraft. Thank you. So I, I thought that was an outstanding one. So the man-on-man -man teaming I thought was very good. I thought all the space, I mean, I, I think we're really coming 
to ourselves on what we're discussing and how we're handling space, how we're going to have to be offensive, defensive, and what the threats out there. I, I thought they were great. I thought that when we had in some of the panels, we had the discussions on agile combat employment. And, you know, we used to call it survive to operate, but we know that we're going to be targeting. And now we're developing these capabilities to be able to operate throughout the Pacific. Yeah. John Deptula, thoughts? Yeah, I've already talked about my top three, General Kelly's presentation, the congressional panel, and General Minahan's remarks. But there were a lot of other good ones as well. The panel on the progress and future of the B-21 was another standout. We need to start thinking about accelerating production of that aircraft as it's going to be absolutely key in deterring a China fight and winning it if that actually happens. Then there was a panel on building air and space warriors now and tomorrow that dealt with professional military education, how to approach the pilot crisis, advanced flight training, live virtual constructive technology, and how the Space Force is going to train its personnel to instill a warrior ethos into that service. So lots of great panels. Sledge, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would say the agenda was a very balanced approach to addressing the, the issues that are confronting the Department of the Air Force. I, I thought it was a great conference and, you know, tip of the cap to AFA. Well done. Okay, the exhibition floor featuring a ton of industry displays is another major component to the event. And it's it's pretty amazing when you walk down there. I mean, the, the scale of the displays and, and what you can literally go touch down there and see and talk to the experts about, the, the people actually designing the stuff is amazing. But to all of you, what were the biggest learning points as you met with these folks? Any specific technologies that you want to highlight or, or stuck out in a certain way? Yeah, Doug, let me jump in there on this one. First, it's kind of a, a wow. The company presentations, I thought, were the best seen to date. And I've told many people on active duty that if they don't do anything else, they need to swing by the industry displays as there's always something that you're going to learn that you won't sitting at your desk inside the Pentagon or on Capitol Hill. I always found out something new when I was on active duty and I came to this event. I think one of the things that really struck me was that, you know, we're uh, right on the cusp of a turning point between where the attention getters are shifting from hardware to software. And people are beginning to realize that the hardware are just the hosts for the software that allows us to assimilate, manipulate, and then turn information into decision quality information that we can actually act upon and meet what our ultimate kind of penultimate goal is, and that's to be able to make decisions inside an adversary's decision cycle. So great job. And I think we'll continue to see evolution in that trend in the future. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The only thing I would, I would say, you know, discussions with senior Air Force leaders, you'd often get a different answer to the same question. So I thought there was a bit of an inconsistent message. And that's, you know, that's, while it's good to have differing opinions and thoughts, that's disconcerting to industry because they need to know where the Air Force is going, what they're thinking, if they're going to invest money or they're going to partner with the Air Force. I think that was one thing that jumped out for me. The other thing was you can really tell what major programs are going to be in play for the Air Force for the next three to five years by what industry is trying to 
market or advertise or advocate for in there. And without going into specifics or, you know, just talking in general trends here, I think a couple of things stood out. The first was there are a lot of really compelling offers for the collaborative combat aircraft program. A lot of the different companies are looking at, I, I think, I really thought were very innovative. And I, I hope the Air Force selects, truly selects a family of systems to leverage some of the innovation in each to to satisfy some of those niche capabilities that the, the program is going to address. The second thing, and I, I didn't take Latin in high school, so I, I guess the plural for Oculus is Oculi. You saw a lot of Oculi headsets out in the various booths, which really suggests to me that there's going to be a lot in AR, VR in the future of the Air Force. And I think that's the right way to. But then I, I guess after hearing Gen General Deptula talk uh, software, I was my last point was going to be it's really about the network. But I think he's absolutely right. It is really about the software that enables everything else and gives the decision makers that decision grade knowledge so they can act quicker than the adversary can. Great point, Sledge. Let, let me just emphasize that whole information thing, the whole JADC2 thing, all of the different services approaches all rely on something that's very non-sexy but extraordinarily important, and that's the ubiquitous and seamless sharing of information is going to require assured connectivity, and that has yet to be demonstrated. I agree with everything that was said. I, I think autonomy, I mean, if I, were to, if I were to lay one thing out there, I'm watching more and more systems become autonomous. And that's going to be ground systems, air systems. Then the next piece getting into a general tip tool and sledgehammer. Now, how do they talk to each other? How do they integrate? How do we make this happen together? And I've watched a lot of C2. I've seen a lot more ISR out there, a lot more space training. I thought you hit it right on, Sledge. Training is so going to be so different. We are just taking leaps and bounds. And if you look at live virtual constructive training, that's, that's that next step. And how do we get everybody together? And how can we train the way we're actually going to fight? And then, you know, you talked about UASs, but I've seen a lot of counter UAS out there. And, and that's going to be key. And matter of fact, those of us watching football this weekend, we had two games interrupted because there were unmanned systems that came in and they had to delay the game. So that is going to be growing because it's not just going to affect the battlefield, but it's going to affect back here. No, it's a great summation of the event, guys. I really appreciate that. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit and surveil the world. Ukraine has made some recent gains against Russia, but it's clear Putin is going to try to rally forces to help check this progress. Thoughts on where the conflict stands right now? Laser, let's start with you. I th he's got enough logistics problems to begin with, uh, with the forces he has in place. Number one, I don't know how he gets 300,000 troops together. Number two, they aren't like our guard reserve where they exist. So they have to get them out there. They have to train. They have no equipment for them, no uniforms for them, no training for them. And then as we've seen, the lines, the flights are all booked to get out of the country. The lines across the borders are long, miles long. I just, and again, and there's been more protests today. So and, and a shooting today, I believe I'm one of the recruiters. So I don't see how he gets the amount of people that he needs. We also have winter coming. I think he has a, a lot of problems trying to support what he's trying to do and what he's failed to do actually in Ukraine. Sledge, thoughts? 
No, I would agree with what Laser's saying there, but we underestimate Putin at our own peril, or I would say at the peril of the Ukrainians. So it's a long way from over. What happens in the battle field or in the battle space is not going to be linear. You know, he may have a trick or two they can pull out there, but he is running out of friends and he's running out of support. The real question I think we need to look at is what are we willing to support as an end state in Ukraine and help them see this through? That's well said. Now, John Deptula, members of Congress just issued a letter citing DOD's delays getting more capable UAVs to Ukraine. It's gotten a fair amount of publicity. I even saw it in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. Thoughts on this? There are some pretty powerful names on the signatories. Yeah, Doug, um, the U.S. MQ-1 Gray Eagles and uh, MQ-9 Reapers, drones that in sufficient numbers and properly employed as part of an integrated air campaign, can provide significant military capability that can be used to counter Russian aggression and force them out of Ukraine. These aircraft, along with appropriate training, that's very, very important, could become the nucleus of a westernized Ukrainian air force. Achieving that objective as soon as possible is a right and worthy goal. Unfortunately, the obstacles to this path are primarily political. Instead of powerfully responding with significant consequences to the horrors that Putin and his military are inflicting on innocents, the President and the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, have incrementally increased the kinds of military gear being provided, cautiously tempering any action they fear might trigger a disproportionate response from Putin. Now, some cite material security concerns if some of the drones were provided to Ukraine, get shot down and end up in Russian hands. Yet these aircraft have been employed for decades, and they've long been exposed to U.S. adversaries. Particularly sensitive equipment can be controlled appropriately. Concerns that training would take too long are similarly specious. Had the U.S. begun such training when the war broke out, Ukraine could already be using these systems today. So I'm glad to see the support from Congress to move more capable Gray Eagles and even MQ-9s to Ukraine as soon as possible, because they can significantly aid the Ukrainian efforts. Any other world events or trends folks want to highlight? Yeah, let me jump on this one again, too. I, I mean, it's been in the news. Sledge and Laser mentioned it, but Russia's response with this mobilization of 300,000 reservists really marks a turning point in the seven-month war. To date, the war has turned Putin into a political pariah externally, now it's going to test Putin's domestic strength. Then there's the issue of Putin's sham referendums in Russian-controlled Ukrainian territory to claim it as Russian and then threaten to use nuclear weapons if Ukraine tries to push the Russians out. This is absolute nonsense, and the West shouldn't fall for his bluff. President Biden needs to make sure that Putin knows that any use of nuclear weapons on his part would result in the end of his regime, Putin himself, and perhaps the entire Russian empire. So stay tuned. So what about D.C.? You know, we're right on the eve of an election. What should we expect for the coming month? Sledge, Laser? Well, I'll, I'll jump on this one first, and I'll defer what happens after the election and during the lame duck session to Laser. But there's still a lot that needs to happen before the election. And this week in front of us here, I think, is going to be deceptively busy. Obviously, the big ticket item is the continuing resolution 
that will fund the government through the 16th of December. I know there's going to be a trial balloon that comes up in the senator. They're going to start the procedure to get a vote on the floor. The House will probably follow later in the week and give the president time to sign it. So I'm not hearing any high stakes drama that we're going to have a government shutdown. So we should expect to see a CR. But there are a couple things that are worth noting in that CR. The first is uh, we expect about $13 billion tacked on to help Ukraine. A lot of that is going to be added presidential drawdown authority, which means we can take stocks away from DOD quickly, ultimately replacing those with, with new production. But that'll take a while. And then obviously the major sticking point is going to be on whether or not the development of energy projects are going to be permitted on an expedited manner, the, the Senator Manchin provision there. There is one other thing, though, that I know a lot of probably a lot of our listeners and a lot of companies are interested in, and that's the reauthorization for the Small Business Innovative Research Program. That will expire at the end of the fiscal year. If you'd asked me a week ago, I would have said that there's no way in heck Congress would pass a standalone bill that it would probably be attached to the NDAA when that passes later in the year. But it looks like there was a breakthrough in the Senate last week. Senator Paul's objections have been ameliorated. They, the Senate passed that. The House should pick it up this week and pass it, which is really, really good news for a lot of the small businesses out there, a lot of the innovative technologies that are emerging that need to be developed. And, and hopefully this will be off the table for the next three years with this reauthorization. So, Laser, I'll leave the easy part to you. Yeah, well, I'll just follow on on the CR. So what we're hearing, we could see a text tonight, but Maybe tomorrow, as Sledge said, there's going to be a vote tomorrow. The first vote is going to be on Mansion Bill, which is the permitting. I don't know where that's going to be right now, but it doesn't look like they're going to get the 60 votes. And then, as Sledge said, then they'll move on to the CR that they have with everything that he said. It's in there. We expect it to get done, hopefully, in the Senate by Wednesday, and then the House could pass it as quick as Thursday. But obviously, they got till Friday. That should last until the 16th of November. Again, the appropriators haven't begun any direction to go ahead and start working on the omnibus. We expect as we get closer to the election and definitely right after the election, we'll expect them to start working it. We know Senator Leahy, Senator Shelby are going to be leaving. Obviously, they're, they didn't want to get this omnibus done, so there's going to be a lot of work. We're optimistic that it will hopefully, um, 16 December, is if I didn't say, yeah, not November, 16 December. So it'll go through 16 December. So anyway, they'll get the omnibus. They'll start working it. It'll probably need another a CR going through 16 December. We're hoping they get it done through Christmas. We're still being optimistic. It could take till the end of the calendar year. And the one thing we are all hoping that doesn't happen as we kick it into next year, because if we do, it'll take all the way till March to try to get this thing done. But again, we'll have to see when we get out there. It really is going to depend on who has the majority in the House and the Senate. That is what is going to determine how well they can work through the omnibus. No, I appreciate that a lot. Any parting shots, guys? Did I miss anything? The only thing, and I know it's of interest to a lot of our Air Force families, airmen out there, there was an article, and I'm an Air Force Academy graduate. It's the greatest school out there. It trains the best officers that are out there, and nothing to any of the other schools that produce officers. Um, Except the University of Virginia, ROTC <laughs> program. But I saw the recent article, and again, I wasn't at the academy, but we all saw this article about the diversity and inclusion training that they had and some of the slides that came out. And listening to what the Air Force Academy had to say, you know, the slides can't be taken upon themselves. And the whole purpose was for diversity and inclusion in that course. And again, I, I, I did not hear what they said. I wasn't in the class, but what I'm looking at is the 
is the feedback that came out of those slides, came out of what people read. My only concern is that we should be focused on the mission. You know, what everything that happened at the Air Force Associate Air and Space Force convention out there and this has seemed to be at the veterans or active duty or cadets or future cadets, but it seems to have hurt inclusion and not help it. So again, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens coming out of the Air Force Academy, but I know their intent was diversity inclusion and however this was taken, you know, it seems to have impacted that. No, it's going to be an important one, and uh, I know one thing. Uh, people feel very strongly about that school, so I'm, I'm sure there are going to be some more plays here. Okay, thanks to everybody for your time today. It's all we've got. John Leptula, Sledge, Laser, it's been awesome catching up. Appreciate it. You bet, Doug. Have a great aerospace power kind of day. Thanks, Doug. Thanks. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning into today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button, follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we can explore further. And as always, you can join into the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next time.